Greetings, folks. I'm Paul Nixon. This is the Church is Changing podcast. I am so glad that you are joining us for this time, and I am delighted today to be with my old friend, Candace Lewis. We've had some adventures together working in tandem since about 15 years ago when we both landed up at the brand new Path One Church New Starts team. Candace, welcome to Church is Changing. Hey, Paul. It is great to be here, and the church is indeed changing, so I'm looking forward to this conversation. It is changing, and you have, since the time we first worked together, you went on to lead our team, and then you became a DS in Florida, and now Candace serves as the president dean of Gammon Theological Seminary in Atlanta. I guess Atlanta and beyond, because everything's online these days. Candace, you've been at Gammon, what, two or three years now, right? Yep, almost uh, three years. Very cool. Well, this last week, you and I met when we were in Charlotte together at the Fresh Expressions United Methodist event, and you were one of the plenary talks, and you electrified the room. It was a good, it was a good hour with the theme, um, We Can Do Hard Things. And I would love for some of our listeners to be able to hear that talk, and we'll have some information about that in the show notes where they can find that and, and hear that real challenge that you gave to us as church leaders. What are, what are some of the hard things that you sense God is calling us as church to, to think about and to face up to in the 2020s? Thanks again, Paul, for having me to be a part of this conversation. The inspiration from the talk, let me just kind of start there. It came from this invitation that I got to be the MLK speaker for the Oklahoma conference. And so with that invitation, it put me in conversation with, with King. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., the conversation initially was scheduled for his birthday, you know, observation, celebration, and then it got rescheduled. So it just gave me a little bit more time to kind of keep wrestling with the talk. And then I got invited to the Fresh Expressions conversation. So I got this thought that I wanted to put Jesus, since we're believers, in conversation with King, in conversation with Wesley, it got me in conversation with Christ, and it invited us into the conversation. So in, in going wow. into conversation, with it was just fascinating. So as it relates to going into conversation with, with M.L. King, I wanted to look at his kind of last book that he wrote, you know, prior to his assassination. And his final book uh, was called, uh, at least the final book that I'm aware of, is this book called uh, Community or Chaos, you know, where do we go from here? Mm. And the book was uh, ended up being published after he had passed away, after he was assassinated. And Coretta Scott King wrote the introduction. So it was just fascinating. The book was written uh, probably in 1967. And to look at some of the things that King said prophetically and to see how it parallels with kind of what we're living into today now, 60 plus years later, was just was just fascinating to me. But one of the things he said in the book was he talked about what did it mean to be peacemakers and what did it mean for us to really seek? We had it basically said we have to decide: are we going to be be, be negative peacemakers or negative peacekeepers, or if we're going to be about positive peace? So then, when I read those two definitions, and again, we can just kind of put the definitions kind of down in the show notes. But let me just give you a few highlights of those two definitions and the scripture that kind of was that the sermon was kind of built on was Jesus's scripture when he makes the comment on the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the children of God. So I'm wrestling with this idea about what does it mean to be a peacemaker? So I'm hearing King talk about, uh, talk to us about, you know, where are we going to go from here? He's about to be assassinated. And then we go over to John Wesley and John Wesley had very clear thoughts about slavery and how he had really hoped that the Methodists would have embraced more of an anti-slavery position. So he had, so I, I went to Wesley's book that was written back in the 1800s on his thoughts on slavery. And then we have what Christ is saying to us. And then we have to ask ourselves, what are we going to do with all this that's being said? And then, of course, in the midst of this kind of Google research, I find this children's book that's called We Can Do Hard Things or I Can Do Hard Things. And as soon as I saw that title, that became clear to me, like, this is the message, because it really is just an invitation to hear hear what's being said. And in it, it's a real analysis of kind of our current times. And then we have to ask ourselves, what is our invitation and opportunity here? But on the front end of it, I just wanted to let people know this is going to be tough, but we can also do hard things. Does that make sense? It does. 
So that's kind of how I came to the conversation. So let me just kind of jump in and give you a definition of negative peace and then positive peace. And maybe we can talk about where we see that, you know, whether it be in the church or in the society. All right. So the definition that King offers as it relates to negative peace, negative peace is this false peace. It's a veneer of peace. It's the absence of tension that comes at the expense, though, of justice, which sweeps issues under the rug and maintains this air of civility and the pretense of peace in the midst of systemic injustice, warfare, widespread violence, racism, poverty, nuclear weapons, and environmental destruction. Positive peace, on the other hand, seems loud. It's messy. It's disruptive, tense, risky, and frightening, and it publicly resists systemic injustice. It agitates for justice and tries to reconcile and create beloved community. Positive peace does not look or feel peaceful at all because it engages systemic injustice and violence. It exposes fear, hostility, hatred, and division in the process of social transformation. Wow. I know, right? (laughs) I'm reminded of Jesus' comments, just kind of like an aside that made it it made the Bible because people like said, huh? When he said, um, I've come not to bring peace, but to bring, you know, um, but to split families apart, you know, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because that's sometimes what working for Shalom does. It really does. And it, and it really is. And, and I think for me, Jesus's invitation to us to be peacemakers, this text from King and this challenge from King just opened up because I think it, and I think when we just kind of try to look at peace as like this one encapsulated way of being, because I think in, in all honesty, we've experienced negative peace, right? We've experienced negative yes. peace. I've experienced positive peace. But this idea that if you don't differentiate the types of peace or how peace can play itself out, to me, it, it doesn't give us the opportunity to really get to a place of more positive peace. Because I've been in so many meetings where there was like this negative peace, like we weren't saying anything, but the room was so loaded, right? I mean, there's like this big elephant sitting on the table. It's just loaded with all kind of anger, angst, anxiety, stress, disagreement, but but all in the name of peace, we didn't say anything about what we really needed to talk about. You know, and sometimes when the anger and the frustration builds to a certain level, it overflows. It does. And maybe, it does. And maybe at that moment, maybe it's not our most constructive moment, but we just, we overflow with it. And then some voice from management says, first of all, Dr. Lewis, we need for you to calm down. Right. <laughs> exactly. As if, as if I was the problem or did I just explode or, or was I just a, a, an, uh, an example of what was already in the room, right? Yeah. I watch people. I watch people with American Airlines, you know, first of all, Mr. Smith, we need you to calm down. Well, you know, maybe so. Maybe so. Exactly. 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 (laughs) But I've been in those spaces where, again, that one person who finally just kind of explodes or their, their top finally comes off. But to your point, sometimes we make that person the identified patient as opposed to acknowledging like, hey, what's up under this? You know, why did, yeah. why did the pot finally boil over? So now that we've kind of cleaned up the mess of the pot boiling over, let's actually look at what's really on the table. And yes. to me, that's the that's the process of really getting into positive peace. And there are great customer service agents that are able to do that out there. We commend you <laughs> if you're listening. You know, the other word that came to me when you were giving the talk was the word shalom, Mm -hmm. which is positive peace. Mm -hmm. But I hadn't ever really thought with shalom about the messiness of it and about the fact that sometimes the work to getting to shalom is disruptive and divisive and controversial and all that. You know, shalom is definitely more than just a cessation of violence or uh, or tabling the, the problem and everybody's just going to hold tight till somebody works on it. Shalom is about getting to just resolutions, mm-hmm. you know, and it just reminded me that Shalom is messy. That was, that was maybe the aha for me that, that just really hit me in that. It, it is. And, and, and so I think what, one of the things that I would add to that in this whole idea about Shalom, oftentimes when Shalom doesn't exist, there's usually a power differential, right? Mm-hmm. There's like usually someone or some system or some entity or some, community dynamic where there's usually an oppressor or a person that has more power and doesn't see the value of of a shared power structure, right? And so oftentimes when things erupt, that kind of unnamed, and and, and what's tough about power differentials, oftentimes they can exist in communities or in context and never be named, right? They're just assumed that this this is the way it is. And 
And that's that's why and that's where, let's say, in, in King's journey and and in the journey of our society, let's say during the 60s, when we were when when black leaders and, and white leaders together in the church were marching together for freedom and for justice and for civil rights, there often wasn't this acknowledge of the, un, the inequality that existed, whether it was in the laws, the inequality that existed in the communities, the inequality that existed in pay structures, the inequality that existed everywhere. So some people literally could ask the question, well, why are you so upset? You know, you're, you're, you're no longer in this condition. But the, the cry was that, but again, if we all have been created equal by God, which we all have been, and if we all have the same inalienable rights, which the Constitution says that we do, then, then we have to create a system and a society where we can all live in that you know, place of shalom. But again, at that time, and again, we still see it in our society today, unfortunately, that kind of white supremacist mindset. And again, I understand that white supremacy doesn't apply to all white people because I really understand white supremacy. Now, really, it's a mindset. It's, it's, it can be this unspoken, embedded attitude and perspective in the system that one race is better than another race. Does that make sense? Sometimes it never has it to be stated, be. but it can be, it, but the whole system can be operating with that premise or with that assumption. And as a white guy who tries hard not to be a white supremacist, I still have <laughs> the privilege that comes with my outward appearance that, you know, in some ways I get treated differently. Absolutely. Um, and I and I get a break from the cop that stops me for speeding or whatever because I'm a white I'm a white guy talking to a white guy, you know, on the side of the road. Exactly. 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 And 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 I being a person of color, woman of color, I have brothers, young black men, and they don't get that privilege. They don't get that right. pass. They don't get that that bias. And so that in and of itself is an example of what, you know, white supremacy and how it can be embedded in our society where one based on my color and how I appear in the world, I'm assuming negative for you. I'm assuming positive for this person. And again, the journey to Shalom says, let's name that. Let's acknowledge that bias. Let's work to dismantle that bias in our society so we can really judge people and treat people equally and equitably. And especially from a church perspective, you know, and we can really live as live like the children of God. Does that make sense? And so to me, that's, yes. but that's a hard thing, right, Paul? That's, that's a hard thing to do. That is a hard thing. And within the context of our denomination, which has been kind of a big tent mm-hmm. and has tried to, even though we have, we've stumbled onto the rocks in recent years as we've got into some controversial issues, by and large, we have, we have tried, massively tried to avoid contention and to just sort of hold the quote-unquote peace, maybe negative peace at times, in order just not to rock the boat because we had some other, we've been an aging church, our statistics are going down, and we don't want to further exacerbate that or to lose more money or churches disaffiliate or whatever. So we have been just really trying to, in many, many spaces, both at annual conference level and also at congregation level, not to rock the boat. And especially I think about the Midwest, the Midwest, Kansas, I'm going to pick on Kansas here, where for years it was kind of a bellwether of UMC because it was just kind of the, the, the middle of everything. And Methodists have often just tried to be in the middle space of everything. But mm-hmm. when you get in the middle of everything, you can really come up being a defender of status quo. Mm-hmm. in status quo, even when it's not good for anybody. Absolutely. Um, so my example for that, and to your, you're exactly right, because the church is changing around us, the pot is boiling over. And again, as an example, we can all remember when we watched the video of George Floyd being murdered. And it was it was in watching him ask for help, and the police officer chose to keep his kind of knee on his neck until the person, we literally are watching this video, the person just like loses life. And we we just watched, almost like you watched the life go out of him. I mean, I remember watching the video replays and thinking like, you gotta be kidding me. Like, just like, let him breathe. Like, seriously, let him breathe. But the reality is going back to this Methodist status quo, there are three generations post that generation, because I'm realizing too, a lot of the change is happening generationally. So that would, so the Methodist church has a lot of, you know, from the builder generation 
and then a significant number of boomers. And now you have Gen Xers that are in leadership in a lot of different ways. But past Gen Xers, they're like two to three generations behind us. And they just see the world significantly different, right? So they're not afraid of pots boiling over. They're used to the the messiness of it. It gets cleaned up and they just kind of, you know, live on the other side of it. So to me, the message we can do hard things is, is very hopeful to younger people because they're yes. just used to pot spilling over. You know what I'm saying? I mean, and it's just yes. it's just not that big of a deal for them. And so and so I say that to say too, in the protest that happened across the world after George Floyd was murdered, in addition to others, Rihanna Taylor, Ahmaud Aubrey, when the cry that Black Lives Do Matter came out, you saw young leaders and young people from across the world joining in on these protests because for them it it really was an injustice that was done and they wanted to just kind of in some ways put their stake in the ground and the pot had boiled over, but they didn't mind the messiness on the other side of it. Now, of course, outside of the, you know, the riots and the looting we had, but outside of those few instances where there were riots and looting, overall, that was a real peaceful protest. But people were really upset and want, wants to see and still want to see changes in our system so we can not have black men or black women like Sandra Bland murdered unjustly and unfairly. And Sandra Bland was the one who touched my heart. You know, there, it, there's always a story that touches different it hearts. It is. Mm-hmm. As I got into her story, I, she, had, she had a personality similar to mine. I could imagine after driving for all night long, I might have responded in the way she responded as well. It was, and, but again, it would have been a different story because it would have been a white guy pulled over. Mm-hmm. You know, Looking at why the United Methodist Church has been in disarray and been in decline, all apart from this current drama that's going on around the human sexuality or using human sexuality as just a an excuse to want to look for more congregational governance or whatever. But all aside from that, young people have been bailing on us for years just out of sheer boredom. <laughs> I mean, just out of just out of sheer you know, snoozing. And there's something about hard things that is awakening to younger generations. They're saying, hey, are you really working on this? Mm-hmm, exactly. Maybe, maybe you're relevant after all. Because mm-hmm. what we see in the world around us is young people, people of organized faith or not, are deeply, deeply, the spirit stirs way deep in them around these kinds of, of, of justice issues. And the church is behind the. It, we're not. Even, we're not at the front of the march in a lot mm-hmm, of ways. Mm-hmm, I mean, it's mm-hmm. a, it's other folk, but but younger folk are mm-hmm. there. You know? mm-hmm. So the very thing that was helping us hold it together, maybe back in the whatever in the eighties in Kansas with an older group, is now become. Our, I mean, just from sheer pra- all aside from justice, just sheer practically is not helping us. You know, tepid church is not a good thing at any point, but certainly not in the 2020. It absolutely isn't. And in every community where our Methodist churches are located, there are invitations, opportunities for people to get involved in ways that really do matter to people in those communities, usually to the people immediately surrounding the church. And we can do hard things is that invitation that said, that says, look at, look at your own community. Because again, I didn't somehow try to name everything that's going on in every community USA, right? Again, we we don't know. So we tried to lift up some of the higher issues, some of the bigger issues, but the invitation really does drill down to that person in that community that just goes out into the community and look at the issues surrounding who lives in my community. Then you almost then you put on your kind of Mr. Rogers sweater, right? right? And you know, who are the people in my neighborhood? They're the people that I meet when I'm walking down the street or driving down the street. They're the people that we meet each day. And so when the church makes a decision that we can actually do hard things, we go out in our communities, we re-engage, we see what's happening, we see where peace is and where peace exists and where peace doesn't exist, and we ask ourselves a different question, what can we do about that? And that's what Fresh Expressions is seeking to do. And I love the the the, the questions that this message stirred up because people begin to ask ourselves, you know, is dinner church enough? You know, because dinner church is an entry back into the community. Yes, it is. Are there people that do really enjoy coming to eat that free meal. But those people also may have other complex challenges that are going on in their lives. And so I, I heard some of the dinner church people wrestling with it, you know, but is is providing dinner enough? And then so you look at Tiffany in Jacksonville, Florida, 
where it's an old first UMC of Jacksonville. Paul, this church is historic. It has beautiful buildings. It had a preschool. I mean, it's amazing. But that church began to ask itself the question, and this leader, she's an African-American woman that's leading this church, and these are beautiful, aged, predominantly you know, white persons, males and females who've given and been a part of that church for years. That church is converting the educational building into foster housing. Oh, beautiful. Do you hear me? I mean, it, and they are, it's bringing such new life to this community because they literally are in downtown. So they never moved out of downtown. So we applaud them for that. But at some point, you know, the elderly couldn't keep driving back into the city, but the city, they were surrounded by kids and young adults. Right. But many of them are in the foster system, unhoused, aging out of foster care and need some level of transitional you know, safe space where they can grow and, and, you know, make normal young adult mistakes and, and earn, you know, college degrees if they choose to, or go to, you know, get a trade or become an entrepreneur, whatever they want to do. But this beautiful church has decided that they're going to convert that educational wing that's 12,000 square feet into housing for students that are aging out of foster care. Beautiful. And, and they love it. And it's tremendous. Does that make sense? I mean, these people yes. were literally right around yes. the church. I've learned in my church, and I'm not the pastor there. I just I just show up to help as I can. But what I've watched there is that showing up in community to neighbors like these kids and stepping forward to, if you see a need, try to meet it. You know, work, let's work with others to, to meet these needs. We get into relationships. And then we begin to understand these kids. We begin to understand what's going on in the foster system that put them in this position. We, My church partners with the Black History Committee, even though we're a majority Anglo church and in our community. And what a rich partnership. And one of our members is the chair of the Black History Committee, and she's a Latina woman. But the point is, is that we, we've, we've owned what a, what, a met, what a great witness and work that that group does, and so they became partners with it. Out of the partnership, we get to know folk. Mm-hmm. Out of getting to know folk, synergy happens, and you know, new ideas form, and it, it leads to advocacy. Mm-hmm. It just goes there. It just does because we talked about. Remember, there in these commit in these communities where we desire to see shalom, there are injustices that that have already been embedded in the system that people experience may not have been able to name. So again, we're wanting to now give people tools to be able to go into that system, acknowledging the hard things that exist, have enough tools where you can begin to name where the systemic injustice is, if it's within the system, and you begin to help people advocate for change. Because that's one of the things that King says, which it was very much so a challenge to me. After the talk, you know, I go back to the book that I was listening to, Community or Chaos, Where Do We Go From Here? He says, for every persuasive speech that you give, you will not change the system just based on a persuasive speech. And I was like, dang. Wow. Exactly. He says you have to go in and find out where the actual problems exist within the power structure, and you have to actually demand that the system change. And so to me, thank you. That's why I was so excited about this conversation, because we have to match the persuasive speech with the commitment to the doing the work of fixing the system where the system exist and it doesn't create shalom and peace for all God's people. Okay, all you silver-tongued preachers listening to this, <laughs> that's a word right there. That's, that's a word. it. That's it. That's it. That is it. <laughs> because we can talk it. Man, we can talk a good talk Yeah. Um, sometimes. What are some of, you know, one of the things I heard in the, the address that you gave was, was it, it's a big message about doing hard things. And the, the focus of it was in terms of things related to justice. Almost everything that the church is being called to do right now is hard because what we used to do doesn't work. And so we're having to innovate. We're having to try new things. And so I heard even a broader encouragement that we're, we're up to this. If the, Holy Spirit's, if the Holy Spirit is leading in a certain direction, it's going to be okay. We just got to show up to what God's up to. We, we can do this. It we was so inspirational. I mean, that, you got a standing ovation at the end. I think everybody got that. And what are some of the other hard things that you've sensed God calling the church to to step up and finally address? You know, I, thank you. I think that's a great invitation, and it's an opportunity for me to, what I say, name those things in the city. But, Paul, I think the greatest amount it's almost like when your eyes become open, right? So think about Paul on his kind of Damascus road. I mean, Paul is just, or Saul as he was Saul. 
before right. he became Paul. He's he's on. I mean, you could not tell him he was not doing the Lord's work by persecuting the Christians, right? I mean, he's like literally persecuting the people. So he has this kind of experience where the scales fall from his eyes. And and I honestly, that is my prayer that the scales will fall from people's eyes. Like I want the scale to fall from people's eyes that are in these border cities where people who are coming to the U.S. that are seeking freedom and an opportunity to make a living for themselves and make a life for their families and to see the children that are, you know, I mean, I've heard about it. I've not gone to those spaces, so I don't want to talk about what I don't haven't seen with my own eyes, but I've seen enough pictures, you know, children that are in cages, children that are separated from their families. These are brown children. And we there's something different that we can do about that. Like we can have a very different response to that crisis, right? So it's almost like you could, we can pick a crisis. There's a crisis that's happening in every city, in every country. We can pick a crisis, whether we look at crises that are happening on the African continent. We can look at the crises that are happening in the Middle East right now. We can look at the crisis that's happening between Israel and Gaza right now. There are crises every... We can look at the water crisis, you know, in Michigan. I mean, there there's a crisis. You can look at the environmental crisis. We can look at the crisis that happened in Hawaii when the, when the volcano erupted or the earthquake or just whatever. The earthquake, I think it was, that, ju- that just tore lives and families and people apart, right? And the immediate response to give money, that's a great response. That That's always helpful. But the hard thing is when people's lives are broken, oftentimes they need help putting that life back together. Does that make sense? Yeah. And, and so I think that's where, that's where some of the church can do its most beautiful work. Because if nothing else, God's people, as God's people, we know how to care for people. Right, we know how to love people. We know how to extend a hand, and and we've done it well, right? Because there, you got people in our churches, myself included. I've been a part of the church, capital C, forty years. Like this has been my, you know, thirty years in full time ministry, forty, fifty years just as a human being. Because and there's something about the church, even in its own, you know, brokenness. And I, I'm not one that the churches hasn't always gotten it right. And I believe that for young adults who are doing a lot of deconstruction of their faith right now, I think we need to come alongside of the deconstruction movement. You got to be right there with them. Apologize for the for the what, the things that we got wrong, right? Let me tell you, friend, I went to this beautiful wedding over the weekend, last weekend, where this same gender couple got married. When I tell you there was so much love in that room, and I understand people may have disagreed with whether whatever people's position is on the issue, but for people who kind of know the Spirit of God, when I tell you that was such a witness of God's love in those two people's lives, and they opened up their wedding, though, with a video of all of the of the journey to justice of LBGTQIA inclusion wow. in the church. And when I tell you it was painful to watch, and they acknowledged the people who, who died with, without ever having been able to have been you know, married in a United Methodist Church. And I mean, just their entire journey. And they brought that back. They brought that into that moment. So there were so many positive witnesses in that experience of the love of God. And I'm just grateful that I believe that God's love is expansive and that God's love is extended and available to everyone. And I think that if we can take that love back into the communities with the light of Christ, with the good news of Christ's message, with the good news of the message framed in a Wesleyan box that speaks about the grace of God, the grace that goes before us, the grace that justifies us. And Lord, I thank God for the grace that sanctifies us, right? Because we ain't got it right. We ain't perfect. We're going to make a whole lot of mistakes on on this road. But the invitation that we can do hard things is to say, hey, friends, we're not done yet. We're not out of the game. Stay involved. Stay engaged. Be human again. Be human with yourself, be human with others, and ask God to really open our eyes so we can see the hard things that God's inviting us to engage in our own spheres of influence. And to me, so full circle, as a president of Gaiman Theological Seminary, we're one of 13 United Methodist seminaries, but the only historically black seminary. So when I looked at the roster of who was speaking, I said, now, and now my natural passion is I love talking about leadership, right? But I said, a lot of people are going to talk about leadership 
there might not be anybody that talks about racism in the church and how that how we don't need to embed racism, you know, in this new movement of fresh expressions. Nobody will probably talk about how we don't need to embed injustice and how we need to dismantle, you know, white supremacy from this new system that we're building, even though the church is still predominantly white. I loved how diverse that audience was, and I'd love the diverse lineup of speakers, but it was interesting to see the thread of justice through many of the talks beyond my talk, talks that preceded us. Rodrigo Cruz, who leads the Net Church's amazing multi-ethnic church, the Asian women's Matoy Yamada Four, the Latino women and men that spoke. So and, and and the white males that spoke, the white females that spoke. It was just amazing to see the threads of justice in everybody's talks, the threads of, of we can do hard things, the beautiful talk that Elaine Heath gave, all of these talks. So anyway, so so it was, it was clear to me that this was my assignment, Candace, fulfill your assignment. Lots of places where we can see hard things that are happening in our communities, injustice happening in our communities, and the invitation is just for the church to go into the world and be the church in the world in relevant ways today. And we're yeah, we're not we're not we're not out. We might be down, but we're not out. You know what I'm saying? And that's just yep. just the message. We might be down, but we ain't we ain't out yet. As a side note to our listeners, the UMFX event that was the first annual event in Charlotte last week. It's going to happen again somewhere in the United States in February of of 2025. And keep your ears open for it. We expect that it will double in size based mm-hmm. on the, the just the incredible energy mm-hmm. that was in that room, which was more energy than I've experienced in a Methodist event in quite a while. Mm-hmm. I know of some churches in the UK, Methodist churches in the UK, United Methodist churches in Germany, where a third, easily a fourth of the families in that church are hosting refugees from Ukraine or somewhere in their spare room, I mean, bringing these people into their homes. Mm. I mean, there is an intensity of connection and compassion. And out of that, a, 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 a growing understanding of the situation that led these people into this trauma in their lives. I don't see that as much in the American church. I'm just going to say, I, I think we can learn internationally, but that, but I, but if it does exist in the American church, it would be with younger congregations usually. Mm-hmm. So, with this in mind, you are a seminary leader, you are a mentor, I know to quite a few young emerging leaders, but they're also teaching us, this next generation coming up, they are mm-hmm. influencing us, they're helping us to, they're helping the scales to fall off of our eyes. What are some of the surprises for you in this, because I know you've been, even when you were a DS and before, you've been nurturing people for a long time, but what? What is the the rising wave of next leaders? How do you see, what's the surprise in that for you? And how do you see them challenging us? You know, honestly, when I tell you one of the biggest surprises is they're not looking for a guaranteed appointment. Interesting. Like they're coming to the, they're coming to the moment bivocationally innovative and they're willing to think about their future in ministry significantly different than pre, than the way previous generations were trained to see themselves as, as people in ministry. They want flexibility. They want options. They want to pastor a church and lead in a community and maybe do five or 10 other things in their, you know, in their ministry career. And that to me is fascinating. And so, and so I say all that to say, I do think that boards of ordained ministries have an invitation and can do a hard thing to create other paths. I don't think ordained deacon and ordained elder catches everybody today. You know, I think for no. for you know for the last 60 years, those two categories caught everybody. I think that there are people who are willing to be theologically trained, but they want to be theologically trained for the marketplace. They want to be theologically trained to be an entrepreneur. They want to be theologically trained to be a community organizer. They want to be theologically trained to to live in and and be a light and a witness in so many other spaces. So that that's that's probably been one of the most fascinating things to watch is people come to seminary, uh, gain and invest in their own theological training, only to just live differently and show up in a very well educated way in whatever space they feel called to. Does that make sense? And so it's just yes. fascinating to hear how calling is still happening. And then oftentimes in the Methodist church's kind of vocational discernment, we offer you maybe three tracks, right? 
And I think that we have an opportunity to create five more tracks. Mm. And I think we would get more people engaged in the ordination process. We would just have to create more tracks. Even if you just yeah. looked at the kind of the going back to the Ephesians four, you know, you're called to be a, you know, pastor, a prophet, a teacher, an, an evangelist, all for the, you know, the work of ministry. I just think that 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 area alone can be broadened because people are living out their calls so many different ways and still so excited to be to be theologically trained. That that's the cool part about it. <laughs> Short of the of, of having new tracks that really make sense in light of the way people are being called. Do you see because the the world I mean if you if you go to a seminary and you sign on with a board of ordained ministry and some annual conference, what a lot of people see as the next ten or more years of their life is going to be babysitting a late life cycle church that doesn't want to change anything. Right. And that is not what they signed on for. That's not what they're calling in detail. Do you see a disconnect between the jobs that are being offered through the, the traditional ministry routes and the kind of the, the gifts and the aspirations of students? You know, what I am seeing, though, in those spaces, because you're absolutely right, they're not called to, they're not feeling this call to, you know, babysit a church in a, in the second stage life cycle. But when I tell you when they meet some of those loving people in that church who wants to change and wants to go on a new ride and create a whole new life cycle, when I tell you I have seen magic happen, I mean, there, yeah. this, I mean, whether it be churches in the Florida conference where we've sent a young pastor right out of seminary and they have, you know, lovingly gone on this whole new adventure, you know, with this leader and it's not even about the leader. And of course, we all know the, the pain of that. He's going to leave one day. You hope the church doesn't kind of fall back to where they were. But I am seeing some real refreshing ways that younger people are repurposing these church buildings and creating entrepreneurial space. This one church in, in Atlanta uh, called the Neighborhood Church comes to mind. A gammon grad, and he's in his D-Men program now. His name is Kylan Pugh. Shout out Kylan when you listen to this. And the pastors are the, I want to say the last name is Woodward, Angie. Oh, gosh, and I'm, I'm missing the other pastor's name right now. But either way, Kylan's on staff at that church. And just that church is so open, and the space is being used in so many different ways. That's bringing in additional income for the church. So, so I, I say all that to say, if they go to that church and that church is open to not just only being babysat until we are able to celebrate, you know, those aging folks' lives. Because some of them are saying, like, I ain't leaving this church. You're gonna carry my body out of here. And Lord have mercy, some of these younger pastors are doing a whole lot of funerals now, <laughs> which is just, you know, a part of life. But either way, though, there's, there's I just I just want the those older people that are still in those churches, they can just stay open to still being a part of God's mission in the world today. There's some young leader that can come in, come partner with them. And again, and to be very still respectful to who they are in the age and stage of life that they're in. But if they can let the pastor not only do that, does that make sense? That's the whole issue. Yes. If you yes. can if you cannot make it a fight that I that I'll care for you, I will preach. I will do the Bible studies. I'll do the Wednesday night dinners. We'll, we, like. We don't have to stop doing anything that the church already does, but but still let them explore the 10 other things that they still want to do that they still have time for that doesn't conflict with the church's current ministry schedule. Because in some of those declining churches, the ministry, if you just think about the programs that they used to do, it shrunk down to just something that only they can manage now, right? But it didn't mean that there weren't still, you know, six more days in the week, hundreds of additional hours that other things could be happening in that same space. And so that's what's been amazing. Again, watching leaders like Audrey Warren down in First Miami, where they sold the building. You know, it's just this amazing new space now. They got millions of dollars now. The church got this whole new building's worship space now in this large, much larger complex. They partnered with a developer on a multi, a multi-faceted yeah, project. Yeah, it's huge. It's huge. Jasmine, yeah, land. Jasmine Smothers here in First Atlanta downtown. They're getting ready to build two towers that are going to help address the affordable housing issue in Atlanta. And again, Jasmine goes to First Church, First African American, First Young Clergy, as they've had as a senior pastor, and is just she goes there with a vision. And again, they're a great example of a church that Jasmine continued to do the things that they were already doing, 
but they together decided not to say that that's all that we can do, right? Mm -hmm. And so now they have partnered with developers and with the city of Atlanta, and they have broken ground and now are getting ready to fund two towers that are going to go up. And that, that'll create income for that church. Jasmine said they literally are going from three streams of income to seven now. Parking is a new stream of income. A school is a new stream of income. Affordable housing is a new stream of income. So the church now has resources to be able to, you know, do ministry in significantly different ways than they were before. Candace, why do you think so many churches are disconnected with young Americans today? I mean, we could go on and on about that. What's the first thought that comes to mind for you? That's a good question. I, I, I think that I think I think the disconnect is not being able to hear each other. Hmm. I think one generation wants to be heard, but is less inclined to listen to what the next generation or a different generation is saying, but listen in a way that we listen for understanding and we can see that we can still travel down this road together. Does that make sense? And I think the same is true for a different, for let's say a younger generation, they know what they're they're saying, what they want to say. They too have to listen in some ways for what they're what the what the other generation is asking for. Because I think I think both I think we can get more both ands, and I think we can get more win wins than we've been able to get. I've seen too many yeah. of these multi generational churches end up with more win losses or win lose than win wins. Again, there's an old saying that. You know, if it's too many old people, the church is going to dry up. If it's too many young people, the church is going to blow up. But if young and old can work <laughs> together, the church is going to grow up. Mm, and, wow, I, and that's, that's good. And, yeah, and I wow. think we're on. I think we're on the we're on the precipice of creating more intergenerational churches where we can grow up. But the old have to commit to not drying up, and the young have to commit to not blowing it up. But the two to work together can really grow up the church. I love that, love that, love and that. And I think, um, and I, so I, so I think that's the opportunity that the church is like. Can we just grow up, right? Which is what Christ calls us to is to mature as disciples. So if we could just mature and grow up, we can actually grow up together and just create, really create the beloved kingdom of God. Which I, which I'm still, I'm going to sign up for another tour of duty because that's my message. Everywhere I go, I'm going to be saying the same thing. We got to mature. We got to grow up. We got to create the kingdom of God and the beloved community of God. Last question, because our time is flying by here. Um, years ago, Paul Rauschenbusch asked Diana Butler Bass, he said, where's the church going in 50 years? And her fast response was on the Internet. Well, that was before <laughs> COVID. And yeah, we, we saw some of that. For you, that question, as we the, the fog is for me, is rising a little bit as we're kind of getting into this new land. What's. Where's the church going? What's it What's it going to look like by the middle of the century? Mm. What do you see? I, I I feel like the church has to get honest. So if it's not going to be honest, it's, it's, it's not going to go anywhere good. Huh? It's, it's not. Yeah. You just got to get honest about this thing. And I think I think that's I think that's for the church as a whole. Now, I do. So, so Ed Stetzer, I appreciated his description when he was asked that question, you know, five years ago when I heard him give a talk. I do think the people that are more like there's this group of people that are more conservative that are going to just double down. Right. They're just going to. Mm -hmm. So they'll continue to just kind of be who they are. I think outside of like, you know, the conservative church that's just going to be who it's going to be. I think the church is in a is in a time of evolving. So evolution is definitely coming to the church. And, and in this evolution, I think that something beautiful is going to be created. So that so that's my larger conviction is right. that the church is evolving. Number two, one, the church is evolving. Number two, something beautiful can be created. Number three, it's going to look significantly different than it looked over the last hundred years. So I, I, I don't think there's going to be as big of an investment in in buildings and space. But there's still going to obviously have to be a place where that this group kind of gathers together. What that looks like, though, I think is going to be significantly different. I do believe that the overhead has to come down. Because yes. I don't see that future generations are, they don't have the same values, let's say, as the builders had, you know, coming out of World War One, World War Two, the building meant something to them. And a lot of them just don't have as much cash. Well, well, they, well, they, they, they just, they, well, they actually, they, they, they have cash, they just choose to, to, to disperse their cash in a significantly different way. And you always know that, right, when you see like the world crisis, and you see how multi-millions of dollars are 
Zelled and Cash Apped and GoFundMe given, you know, in a matter of hours, right? And that's that was money that, you know, 150 years ago, that was just a person kind of giving their tithe to the church. So the church used to be the distributor, redistributor of the funds, and now the church just doesn't have that kind of centrality right. anymore. Right. So outside of that centrality, you probably shouldn't create that much overhead, right? Because nobody's going to just assume responsibility to pay that. So I think the networked church of the future is going to look different places, is going to gather in different ways. And if a church chooses to create a building, which some of them still do, you have to create an experience that's worth coming home, leaving my house to go to. I.e., for example. Absolutely. Movie, movie theaters. I went to this IPEC. It's not even, it used to be the IMAX, right, where you go for the 3D viewing. They got this new thing in the movies called IPIC, I-P-I-C. You pay $40 for one movie ticket, right? So if you're going to go out and hang out with friends, everybody's paying $40. But when I tell you, you go, it's such a customized experience, whether it be from the seating to the sound to the food to the 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 service. So they make it where it's worth leaving your house for. And I think that the church, if we're going to still create a, a gathered experience, just make it where it's worth leaving home for. So, so you got to, whatever you're going to offer, you just got to do the very best that you can in that community, in that context, because I think we're certainly over the time where we're all going to go to Willow Creek to see what they're doing. Nobody's going to be flying out to Saddleback to see what they're doing. So the mega churches, they're going to still be the mega churches, but I think every church has a unique opportunity to create a high value experience in their community and people will still come, right? Because you know what still gets people to come to church is an invitation by somebody. That, that that that's literally still the easiest way to get somebody to come because we tend to go as humans to what we've been invited to. People have uh, younger people have not experienced in many cases what some of us experienced for a variety of reasons. They have not experienced a church as a relevant life transforming place. They just have whatever whatever state they were in or whatever cultural disconnect was there. It's just not associated with that. Mm-hmm. I think if you could associate if you could give them that experience. In, in a language and a form that, you know, is relevant to the to where they're living, you know, the power of the gospel is still the power of the gospel. Right. But but and, and but it, that's not so if you stay with that that experience, though, but some of the even some of the, the online spaces that I love to go to and and, ex, and experience it as a very high value worship experience. What's what's unique about it and what kind of keeps the people networked together is is very relevant to them. And it's a lot more. It's it's a lot more it's a, it's a it's more of a dialogue than just a monologue, right? So mm-hmm. so all these spaces where people get to kind of talk back to the text, and you might hear a sermon or hear a message, and then we have a big old conversation over dinner or lunch, or just an online conversation about the text and how did that strike me and how did that hit me. So so I think it's it's all of those things that that people are willing to go to and be a part of, and that they do still find trans transformation. For example. YouTube videos for those people that are part of YouTube communities, you know where the where where the most exciting part of the conversation is? It's in the comments. Mm. I don't I don't know if you ever look at the comments or see how mm-hmm. much engagement that's happening in the comments. It's in the comments where people are talking to people. So again, people still love talking to people. People still love talking to people about something that somebody else has presented to them. Those are core core elements of what we believe, you know, a church experience ought to be about. But again, it has to be, you know, high value and it has to create and value the fact that I have as much to say about this topic as you have to say about this topic. And to me, it's it's, it's church leaders and seminaries training church leaders to create a whole different experience is what's going to help the church have another life cycle. But I think we have the possibility to have another life cycle. We just have to create a something that's more relevant and let the people who are leading and who are part of this generation, let them lead it. And we now... You know, we're the Moseses, so we need the Joshua's to come on and and they can help lead us forward. And so that's what I'm I'm in the business of of raising up and finding Joshua's. Oh right. Well, I could go 40 more minutes. This is fun. <laughs> this has been great. Thank you. This is great. Speaking of YouTube, while we were having this conversation, I got a text from one of the folks behind the UMFX FXUM event, and your talk is YouTubed. Okay. <laughs> and and that will be included in the show notes. And when Yay. you after you watch the talk, read the comments. Yes, read the comments. <laughs> because and send that's me a where, note about it. We can talk about it. Because I do really sense alongside what you're saying that church is becoming less monologue and more dialogue. Safe dialogue. It's gotta be safe dialogue where I can say what I'm saying without being 
scared or ridiculed or, or, or so forth. We've got to be chill with that. Mm-hmm. Oh, my goodness. Um, thank you, Candace. Thank, for, thank, thank you for being you. Thank you for what you do in, the, in our midst. And, and Yeah, um, and like I said in my talk, thank you for being you or in the comments after the talk. And again, I'm grateful to you as a white male of privilege who, when I became the leader of our team, you looked me in the eye and you says, Candace, lead and I will follow. You know what I'm saying, and 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 you just you just, you were just like whatever, whatever privilege I have, I bestow it upon you. I give it to you. I share. I will open whatever door for you. And when I tell you that, just gave me more courage and confidence than you would ever know. So I was honored to be able to to honor you publicly that way because I, it's it's that kind of sharing of power that creates the beloved community. And I had a beautiful opportunity to bestow that same kind of power on some of the age my Asian sister Matoy who was at the, at the gathering or talking to my Latino sisters. I said, sisters, whatever doors I can open up for you, I'm willing to do that. Whatever influence I have, because I, I don't I don't value having power or authority. I think that comes with those positions. But again, that don't last long. But I think when you can have influence with people, you can go a whole lot further in this world. But I said, I'm bringing people with me. I'm bringing young people, very diverse people, and 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 I'm I'm sharing the influence that I have, bringing them up on the stage. Let's do this together, uh, because that's that that to me is is how we're gonna really make progress. I always want to publicly thank you for for reassuring me that I could lead, because again, I was the first black woman to lead in that space uh, that was still very predominantly white. And you're like, nope, you got this. You're ready. Wherever you lead, I'm following. And and we've been and we still together. And I appreciate you for that, my friend. Yeah. We had a good journey. Candace, thanks. And friends, um, this is Candace Lewis. Dr. Candace Lewis is the president and dean of Gammon Theological Seminary. And before that, she did a lot of good things, including planning a church in Jacksonville, Florida. And Candace, I just thank you for being with us. I thank you for your continued ministry. Friends, this is the Church is Changing podcast. It is a ministry of the United Methodist Church. I'm Paul Nixon, and we'll look forward to being with you again in a couple of weeks when we drop another podcast. Take good care. Church is Changing Podcast is a production of Discipleship Ministries, an agency of the United Methodist Church. Music is by Sanjay Singh. Visit all our podcasts at podcast.umcdiscipleship.org.